0: This morning, I get to preach to you a familiar passage from the 12th chapter of John. And I've titled this sermon, Your King is Coming, which immediately raises the question, what kind of king is he? Your king is coming. What kind of king is he? My goal for this sermon is simple. I'd like to draw our attention to the majesty of Jesus Christ, King of Kings. My prayer for us is that as we look upon his majesty, we may be given eyes that allow us to rejoice greatly in what we see. And ultimately, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we will learn to walk as he walked. Now, to improve our view of his majesty, we're going to follow the word of God this morning. It's going to lead us to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the humility of Jesus Christ and the victory of Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite you now to stand with me. Please turn in your Bible to John chapter 12. I'll begin reading at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. At this point in John's gospel, this great crowd of people had become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. John invites us to come and see. Come and you will see. Well, the people came. And they saw, and what they said in this moment was, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. A great crowd of people had seen the signs, and now they were looking for Jesus to be their Savior and their King. But the question we have before us this morning is, what kind of king is he? Now, wouldn't it be something if we could see so clearly that we would actually ask a question like that? Because that is the real question, isn't it? What kind of king is he? But no. For us, we don't ask, what kind of king is he, do we? See, at the end of the day, I don't think we're so different from this great crowd of people that had come out. Instead of asking, what kind of king is he, we, we tend to ask, what kind of king do I want him to be? And we need to be careful here. Because if we're not careful, our ideas of what kind of king we want Jesus to be, are limited only by our own imagination. See, sadly, I think that we often end up doing what the people did in John chapter 6. They came to Jesus and they tried to take him and make him king by force. But all the while, we insist that that's not what we're doing. We insist that he really is the kind of king that we want him to be. But just like that, he slips through our fingers. See, as soon as we take our eyes off of the Bible, as soon as we stop filtering every thought and every piece of advice and every book we read, in every sermon we listen to, as soon as we stop the filtering through the word of God, that's the moment that Jesus becomes for us a king of our own making. So before we look at the majesty of the kingship of Jesus Christ, we should consider what kind of king this great crowd believed that they were inaugurating. Because now we have to juxtapose what kind of king we want him to be with what kind of king he actually is. To begin, let's consider what the people see and what they're saying about him. In verse 14, we read, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So the people see a man in Jesus who's been performing great signs among them and miracles, and he's been proclaiming to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, in light of all that the people had seen and heard, now they see Jesus ready and willing to take his rightful place as their king. And he comes humbly, riding on a colt of a donkey, because that's what had been written about him by the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years earlier. And the people are shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. This scene in John's gospel is euphoric. This is the culmination of all that Jesus had said and done in his earthly ministry up to this point. This is the validation of the Old Testament prophecies that foretold of the coming Messiah. And now the people are declaring the words of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A direct quote. Now I'd like for you to listen to these words also from Psalm 118. Just a few verses earlier. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. So what kind of king did the people want? I think the psalmist makes it plain to see. In our culture, it might sound something like this. Cut them down. Cut them down. Cut them down. Cut them down. down. The people... They wanted a king who is going to cut their enemies down in the name of the Lord. And they're shouting, Hosanna. This is a cry of praise or adoration, but at the same time, it's a cry of praise. It's also a cry for help. It means, Help us, rescue us, save us. So the people are shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what they're really saying is that our king has finally come. And he's going to cut our enemies down in the name of the Lord. So that's what they wanted. What kind of king do you want Jesus to be? I remember reading John chapter 10, verse 10, when I was 23 years old. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, Jesus said, that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, that's not the first time I read those words at 23, but that's the first time they became vivid to me. At 23, that was the first time those words came alive off the page as I read them. At the time, I was working a job. It was my first job after college. I was newly married, and I was so thankful to God to have that job. But just 18 months in, I hated that job. I was begging God for something else. And then I read these words in red letters. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I thought, well, this, this life I'm living now, this is not life to the full. This cannot be the abundant life that Jesus had in mind when he spoke these words. So without asking any questions of the text... Without speaking with anyone who was older and wiser than myself, I subconsciously defined life to the full. Now, it was about seven years later, about 30 years old, and the lights went on again over this same idea of life to the full. But this time I was reading also in the Gospel of John, but this time I was reading chapter 17, and it was verse 3. And that's where Jesus defines life to the full. See, I came at 23, and with a sincere heart that was full of faith, I did something that's frightening. I took Jesus by force and turned him into a king of my own making. I wonder if you've done the same. Maybe you're like the great crowd of people, and you want Jesus to be a king whose mission it is to right all the wrongs and fix all of the injustices in our world. Perhaps you want Jesus to be a king who insists on your happiness. Or maybe you want a king who ensures a comfortable lifestyle for you and an inheritance for your children and grandchildren. Or maybe you want a king who rejects every form of hardship. Or maybe, maybe you want a king who who is affirming and accepting even of your sin. Now, why do I bring this up? Why make such a big deal out of this? Like I said, I don't think we're so different from this great crowd of people. And when the king didn't meet their expectations, they turned against him. Their shouts of praise quickly became shouts of condemnation. One day they were shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just a few days later, they were shouting, Crucify! kind of king is he? The question still remains before us, doesn't it? So let's turn to the text, and let's look again at what the people are seeing in this moment. Again, beginning with verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This scene, this triumphal entry as it's been called, this moment was foretold by the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years earlier. In verse eight of the ninth chapter of the book of Zechariah reads, never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. This ninth chapter of Zechariah is a glorious chapter. This is good news for the Israelite people. It talks about a coming king who will proclaim peace to the nations, whose rule will extend to the ends of the earth. He will set the prisoners free and restore his people, and he will lead his people into war, and they will be victorious. So we see that Zechariah 9 is very much like Psalm 118 in this way. Each are prophesying of a conquering king, who will bring about the realization of liberty and restoration in the name of the Lord. But I'd like for us to go in for a closer look on the ninth verse of chapter nine of Zechariah, because these are the words that John records in his gospel. This is the specific section of chapter 9 that John wants us to look at. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, humbly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Did you pick up on that? There's a little something extra here in Zechariah that informs us. What kind of king is he? He is righteous. He is humble. And he is victorious. That's what kind of king he is. Now remember, we're talking about a king. We're talking about a king who will rule in his kingdom. This is not intuitive to our way of thinking. What's intuitive to us is democracy, where we, the people, elect those who will represent us in our government. What's intuitive to us are three branches of government, where the legislative branch makes the laws and the judicial branch interprets the laws, and the executive branch enforces the laws. But that's not what we're talking about here, is it? In the kingdom of heaven, there is one branch of government. In the kingdom of heaven, the king makes the laws, and the king interprets the laws, and the king enforces the laws. Jesus is not an elected representative of the people. Jesus is the king. His kingship is transcendent. It has risen above. It is superior to. His kingship is like no other kingship. He is the king of kings. He is the king out of all kings. And we, the people, have no say as to whether or not Jesus is or will continue to be the king. Now, we are not speaking of our shepherd. We are not speaking of our brother. We are not speaking of our friend. Now, we are speaking of our king. And our king will be praised. Our king will be applauded. He will be hailed. He will be celebrated. Our king will be worshiped. He will be obeyed. He will be venerated. He will be esteemed. For he has been given the name that is above every name. And at his name, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. Come and see. Come and see, your king comes to you, righteous. He's a righteous king. As Isaiah wrote about him in the 32nd chapter, verse 1, see, a king will reign in righteousness. I think the New American Standard translation of Zechariah is helpful here. It says, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just. So what kind of king is he? He is a just king. He is not a king who shows prejudice. He is not a king who discriminates. He is not dishonorable. He is not open to bribery. He is not inconsistent. He does not fail to punish those who do evil. He does not fail to reward those who do good. He is incorruptible. He is truthful. He is sincere. He always does what is morally right. He always does what is good. He is a king who reigns on high, and his kingdom is not a kingdom of chaos, but a kingdom of laws. And his laws are perfect. His laws are just, Because he is just and because he has written his laws. And of all the laws in his kingdom, there are no two greater laws than these. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 37, that the greatest law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he said that the second law is like the first law. The second law in the kingdom is that you will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, our king requires that everyone who will live in his kingdom must be like him. In John chapter 13, when Jesus had finished washing his disciples' feet, he said to them, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. If we're going to live in the kingdom, it means we're going to have to learn to act justly. I like the way Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. described justice. It was in his Montgomery bus boycott speech from 1955. His description, I think, helps us understand how loving God and loving our neighbor interacts with acting justly. This was a speech that Dr. King gave just four days after Rosa Parks was arrested and taken to jail for refusing to give up her seat to a white person on a Montgomery City bus. And so it was here in this speech, in this context, of protesting injustice, that Dr. King said that justice is love correcting that which revolts against love. And he was right. As citizens of the kingdom, the right response to that which revolts against love is love itself. Now, of course, this can play out in a number of ways. For example, as citizens of the kingdom, we ought to be working to change or influence or protest against the inequality of opportunity wherever we find it. Or how about this? As citizens of the kingdom, we are not permitted to sit in silence while our family and friends and co-workers call that black guy a n- name that degrades him and defames the God in whose image he was fearfully and wonderfully As citizens of the kingdom, we are not permitted to turn away from those who ask us for help when it is within our power to help them. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were on their way up to pray, and they came across a man who was paralyzed and begging for money. And Peter said to him, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said to him, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. And then he looked at him and said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he took the man by the hand and helped him up. And it says instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. As citizens of the kingdom, we have a high calling. Because our king is just. And if we're going to live in his kingdom, we need to become just too. But the text tells us that he's not only just, doesn't it? It says he was humble as well. What a paradox this is. A king who is all-powerful, And yet he comes to us humbly as a servant. He comes in peace. He comes riding on a donkey. And he humbly carries our burdens. Come to me, he beckons, all who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. What kind of king is he? He is a humble king. And if we're to live in his kingdom, we must become humble, too. In fact, as citizens of the kingdom, we are not permitted to be prideful. How can we continue in our pride when our king, who being in very nature God, as the scripture says, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage? Instead, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. When I was younger, my big brother said to me, if you're not white, you're not. And at 14 years old, I looked at him, and I asked him, you're not what? And he was 16 at the time, so in his 16-year-old wisdom, he replied to me, you're not. If you're not white, you're just not. Does that language make you uneasy? Does it make you just a little bit uncomfortable? I ask, because for citizens of the kingdom, there's something true in that language. There's there's biblical truth in that language. And I think only the humble can be comfortable with it. Because in a strange twist, it turns out that being not is a good thing to be. And I know this flies in the face of everything we instinctively desire, doesn't it? Because we all instinctively desire to make a name for ourselves. But God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. My brothers and sisters, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Think of what you were when you were called to citizenship in the kingdom. Not many of you were wise by human standards like Dr. Phil. Not many were influential on social media like Taylor Swift. Not many of you were of noble birth like the Kennedys. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. It is because of him that you are citizens of the kingdom. It is by his choice that the foolish and the weak and the lowly and the despised, he chose us, the things that are not, That's called high comedy. So get comfortable with that language. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read that when they hurled insults at our king, he did not retaliate. When our king suffered, he made no threats. So because our king comes to us humbly, let's be like-minded. Let's be sympathetic. Let's love one another. Let's be compassionate. That's all from 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's be humble in our dealings with one another. Let's be like our king. But there's more to the prophecy in Zechariah, and it matters, because the integrity of the word of God is at stake. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, He is humble and he is victorious. Remember the great crowd of people. They were shouting Hosanna. And again, this is not only a a cry of adoration and praise, but it's also a cry for help. These people were essentially crying out for justice. So, what happened? What happened between the triumphal entry? and the arrest? What happened between this euphoric moment of celebration and the ultimate dysphoria of the cross? Did something not go according to plan? Maybe the expectations of the people were too high, or maybe they misunderstood the prophecy. Or maybe the expectations of the people were too low. Could it be that the expectations on Jesus to liberate the people and establish his righteous kingdom were not too high, but too low? Could it be that our expectations of what kind of king we want Jesus to be are never too high, but always, always too low? Let me tell you, God did not send the king of kings to defeat the Roman Empire. God did not send the king of kings to defeat the armies of men. God sent the king of kings to defeat the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world. God sent the King of Kings to defeat the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. God sent the King of Kings to stand face to face with the undisputed, undefeated, unmerciful champions of this world known as sin and death. And God knew that his appointed king would suffer, but that he would ultimately walk out of the grave victorious. To the citizens of the kingdom, Jesus says in chapter 16 of John, in the world you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So here's a question. What does a victorious life look like for citizens of the kingdom? Living a victorious life in Christ. That's a whole sermon by itself, that's probably a section in the bookstore. So we could go in a lot of different directions here. But with the limited time we have remaining, we're going to keep it real close to home. Number one, victorious life in Christ. As citizens of the kingdom, we are to exercise justice. That is, we are to act lovingly as a corrective measure to that which revolts against love. We are to combat evil with love because that's the way of our king. That's how our king gained the victory that we walk in. So that's the blueprint. Number two, as citizens of the kingdom, we are to embrace a mentality that regards one another as being more important than ourselves. And we need to look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's from Philippians chapter 2. And we need to get comfortable with the idea that when it comes to this world, we are the things that are not. We are to lower ourselves because that's the way of our king. That's how he gained the victory that we walk in. And number three, as citizens of the kingdom, We are not permitted to indulge our sinful nature. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We as citizens of the kingdom need to get dead serious about putting to death the sin in our lives. Greg Gilbert is a pastor down in Louisville, Kentucky, and he wrote this little book on the gospel. And in it, he said that repentance doesn't mean that you stop sinning. Repentance means that you are no longer at peace with your sin. Being a citizen of the kingdom doesn't mean we become sinless, but it does mean that we are no longer slaves to sin, and it means that we should no longer be at peace with our sin. Now, in closing, I'm going to let you in on a little secret about the triumphal entry the great crowd is ready to inaugurate Jesus as their king. But Jesus knows that this is the last time that he'll be entering Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So while the great crowd is celebrating, Jesus knows that he's effectively riding to his death. And the secret is that there's a kind of tragedy to this whole celebration. And the tragedy isn't that the expectations of the people would go unfulfilled. And it isn't isn't even that Jesus had to live alone with the knowledge that it would be his blood shed on this Passover. The tragedy is that the people are demanding justice in the name of the Lord and they're oblivious to the fact that if God truly gave them the justice that they deserved they would be consumed by his holy wrath if God were to give them justice he would have to wipe them off the face of the earth right alongside their oppressors. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind. Psalm 14. To see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, but all have turned away all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. As it turns out, the king wasn't what they wanted him to be. And even though who we may want him to be often doesn't align with who he actually is, Jesus Christ, our King, is always exactly who we need him to be. Because while what the people wanted was justice, what they truly needed was grace. And grace is exactly, what he gave them. Behold, your king is coming to you. What kind of king is he? He is just. And he is humble. And he is victorious.